My name is Bea Gonzalez, and I am a writer of mostly novels. And I'm Jay Rettelsberger, a singer-songwriter. We began a conversation on Twitter some time ago about Carl Jung, art, and the creative process, and we decided to share our discussion with all of you. Okay, so killing. This is the reason that I've started to think a lot about killing. And that is because I've been listening to a great podcast called Literature and History. And the reason I love it is because it's a person who has a PhD in literature and has decided to uh, make this series that starts right at the beginning with Sumerian literature and goes right through the whole thing. He's, he has about 100 episodes. And one of the motifs that keeps coming up, if you go back far enough, and I think that keeps coming up today, is this notion of how much death, how much killing, how much destruction goes on in all of these stories, right? Uh, my favorite, of course, is the first in the more modern era, uh, modern, uh, of the Western tradition, which is the Iliad. And, you know, the whole of the Iliad is be, be, beyond the gods coming in and out of it are a bunch of people basically killing a bunch of other people and then just most of whom you don't even know who they are and then crying about it for a bit, then going back and killing more people and, and on and on it goes. And I was thinking about that motif because it shows up in myth, it shows up in, in Greek drama, obviously, and it keeps showing up right down to the Game of Thrones. And if you think about the killing of the father that is in the middle of that story. So it keeps happening. So first of all, the killing of the parents, right? That's what uh, drew my attention. Because years ago, I, I had this friend who was a teacher at an inner city school, high school here in Toronto, who would invite, and I think this is so wonderful, he had a lot of really kids who had been basically taken out of the system and who people had given up on. And he would take them and he'd, he wanted to show them respect. And I thought this was a great way to do it. He would invite a bunch of artists to come in and give talks. And we were told, you can talk about anything you want. And we knew that there were kids from about the ages, I think they were about 16, 15, 16 years old, that they were not going to be engaged, <laughs> that they were going to make it a little bit difficult to, to, to engage them. But that didn't matter. We showed up and we all did our thing. And I went in the couple of years that I did this and I talked about the Parsifal myth because I, I love that myth. And I also think that that myth speaks a lot to um, young men in particular, uh, but specifically there's a part of the myth and I'll, I'm not going to obviously go through the whole myth, but I'm going to talk about a part of it that Robert Johnson, who tells this myth so well, talks about, and that's the killing of the Red Knight. At some point, Parsifal meets the Red Knight and, the, and he has to confront him and he kills him. And the way Johnson interprets it, I think is so great, which is that the inner, the red knight is something a young man must fight and kill within themselves. And if they don't manage to conquer that red knight, obviously red is a color that is highly associated with passion and with violence and with a whole bunch of things, um, that if they don't do that, what they will do is they will find a way to make others the object of their violence. And so um, it, I, I would tell that story and then I would talk about how I would turn to them at some point and say, and this is where I got their attention, which always made me laugh. I think the thing you you want to do is you want to kill the father. And of course, all eyes lit up and it's like, well, what do you mean killing the father? And what I would explain to them is that the way I understood that is that in their form of rebellion, what they were trying to do is really fight against uh, something represented by the father. And I would go into what that meant so that they understand, obviously, you're not literally trying to kill anybody. You're just trying to take those parts of yourself that are responding to the world and finding ways to change them. And killing is also transformation, right? It's also, uh, you know, the whole, the whole notion of strife and love being the two opposites, but that they both need each other. So strife in its extreme, you're going to kill something off. You're going to try to transform something so that it can be reunited again. Anyway, so that's that's where I wanted to start and get your thinking about this whole motif of killing the father. Let's stick with just killing the parents, the father and the mother, and let's see where you go with this because I'm fascinated by it. Killing the parents. Um, well, the thing that I think of um is um killing something that inhibits us um something that's um uh, kind of forced upon us um 
through uh, society, through, you know, our religion, through um, maybe even actually things that were instilled in us by our parents, possibly. Um, Things that keep us uh, from discovering uh, our truth. Um, Things that keep us from connecting to our path. Uh, walking the path that that we're meant to walk on. Um, So, uh, you know, and and I've talked to you about this before. uh, There is the, um, you talked about Greek myth, and that reminds also of the, uh, of Oedipus Rex. And, uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of Jim Morrison. I'm a huge fan of The Doors. And uh, um, I, uh, a few weeks ago, I, I sent you the song, The End, to listen to. And there's a whole section that's known as the Oedipal section. And um, <clears throat> what's interesting about Morrison is uh, that was actually a moment of him um, in the Oedipal section where he says, Father, I want to kill you. That actually was a very existential thing for him because um, that's basically what he was going to. His actual father represented, he didn't actually want to kill his father, but his father was a Navy admiral. And Jim Morrison was trying to walk his way into the path of a musician and uh, his father at one point wrote him a letter and told him he should just give up that Hmm. this was not meant for him so he's literally getting a message from his father that is a very it 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 follows this mythical motif right um so sometimes we can actually get these messages from our parents that carry that mythical motif. And so when he sings, Father, I want to kill you, for him, that was a mythological thing. That was, He's saying, enough of this pressure from the outside, I'm going to follow my own way. And that's what I'm going to c- connect with, and that's the journey that I'm on. Um, enough of everyone else's dictates. That's what I'm killing. Mm-hmm. That, that section that uh, I mean, you sent me, sent it to me, and I listened to it. Did it like was he on something when he started went down that path? Or uh, 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 yeah, actually, uh, so the story goes, uh, they were the house band in L.A. at this uh, at, at the most well-known music club at that time called the Whiskey A Go Go, and it was 1966. He had um, uh, consumed a lot of LSD, a lot like um which was which was really common back then and it was legal at that point i believe and uh the band he didn't show up for the show he was like hiding naked under his bed and they had to pull him out from his hotel room to get him on stage and when he gets on stage he unleashes this oedipal section none of the bandmates knew he was going to do it so it was this very theatrical thing and the band rolled with it musically. And it actually ended up getting them um, um, kicked out. And they were the house band for about a year and they were no longer allowed to play there. But they were fortunate enough that they were about to get signed to a record contract right as that was happening. So, wow. um, yeah, yeah. That's quite a story. Yeah, <laughs> that's a very big story. It's interesting because, of course, you know, the Freudians made or Freud himself made such a big deal about this one story. And I think the Jungians and the Freudians really differ on how they look at it. Obviously, Freud was trying to bring sexuality back into the conversation and it was a reaction against, we've talked about this, the Victorian era where it certainly was not part of the conversation. But um, the, the notion of uh, killing the father with the youngins seems to have more to do with transformation of that part of the father that belongs to what you you just talked about, which is uh, societal rules, norms, um, the ideas that we follow, given what the previous generation has followed. And I always use the example of scientists. 
Uh, scientists do their best work generally in their 20s because they don't have a family. They have their attention can be, I mean, there's a lot of theories as to why they do this. But generally, they are, are also in a university environment. They're doing their PhD, so on. And one of the things they actually eventually have to do is kill the father because they have to kill the very thesis that their supervisors have become famous for. And that actually creates a bit of tension sometimes in both parties, because if you're now in your 50s or 60s or beyond and have you know based your whole life on this particular theory and this young guy is coming and basically saying, no, that's not quite right. And so it takes a lot of courage to be able to step forth and say, no, this is actually it. And I think that happens in the arts. I think any artist who's ever broken the rule, and I, of course, you know, my favorite, Wagner, totally reshaped music, certainly killed. Actually, Wagner's a great example of a person who changed music and then killed the art form because nobody could really recover um, after what he did with, with opera. Uh, and you can think of a lot of, a lot of artists that have done that. James Joyce, I think, did that to the novel, even though novelists don't really want to talk about it. What he did with the novel was so extreme that none of us have been able to really gather ourselves together. I mean, it, it is basically a different thing after that. And so it is an important motif, but the way the Freudians interpreted it and, and the way they looked at Oedipus Rex in general, which is, in my view, mistaken. Or, I mean, yes. it does have some truth. It does yes. have some truth. Because if you think about it, the father brings you into the world that the mother cannot initiate you into, right? And if you are three or four years old and you're being initiated into that scary world, you are going to have an immediate reaction that was interesting. And I don't know who said this, but I can't remember. But the notion is that uh, it was a, it was a warning that the problem with that childhood apprehension of the father is that you're not going to let it stick to your personal father. So you are going to find groups out there to kill instead of the father. And, uh, you know, you will find all sorts of groups that you you think merit that kind of um, treatment. So it becomes quite dangerous if it's not done correctly, if it's not done consciously. And who the heck does anything consciously? Um, in this society, nobody's conscious. So it's, it's really difficult. Yeah. It's interesting. You mentioned the the Freud and Jungian split on the father. It's funny because the the interesting thing about it is that Jung projected his father complex onto Freud, mm-hmm. and Jung going his own way with his own theories and his own broad broader perspective was killing the father um and that's what split the relationship i mean that was a big part of it anyway that is it yeah Yeah. it often i mean it's just like anything else it can come out in in a projection uh we can project the father on others well we Um, do generally of course yeah yeah so what is it though what does that look like i'm always you know me i'm always concrete examples how how do how do you think you protect if you if you feel comfortable? How do you feel you've projected that on onto a, onto whatever? I don't know what w- it is. W- would you would you uh, would you like a specific life example? Yeah, that'd be great if you're sure. okay with sharing that. Um. So I last week I talked about a mentor I had. Mm-hmm a very positive relationship with another musician who together we were able to develop our music. And so there got to a point in that relationship where I had to go my own way. Um, I don't think the artistic vision was the same. I think we had different expectations. Um, I didn't even really feel like I had really complete control of my own artistic product. 
And so in order for me to move on, I basically had to kill the father and split. This guy, this this good friend of mine who had become a mentor, um, my projection ended up on him. My projection of the father ended up on him. And he stood in the way between myself and the bigger part of my journey. And that was a break that I had to make. And it's really interesting because there's two experiences I had after the killing of the father in this instance is one was panic. And the other was the sense of everything coming together effortlessly. Like there was no longer a block in my life. Things flowed. People came into my life. Um, everything came together. And it was like, it was this one thing I had to do to make that happen. Uh, and it, I was able to breathe. So there were, there were two. I, and I was just reading Eric Neumann yesterday. And I shared a quote for, from you. And, and in, in some parts, when he talks about killing the father, he talks about the guilt mm-hmm. that one endures when you do that. And I definitely had that guilt. I had that guilt and a sense of panic in that. Uh, so it's a tough ordeal and it is an, initi- it is an initiation of sorts. Yeah. Um, it feels bloody. It really does. Yeah. Wow. Well, it did for Jung too, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, he ended up descending into the what would end up being the uh, the Red Book or what would produce the Red Book after his break from Freud. Now, I think it was even bigger in his case because then he's ostracized from the psychoanalytical community in general. So that creates a whole set of problems because he really is walking his own path. And I guess that leads to another question, which is, are we not killing the father at different stages of our lives, right? Because there are different fathers that show up. Uh, Sometimes it's the societal stuff. Sometimes it is literally our father who is there and we have to separate, you know, Alejandro uh, Jorodowski in his book, that psychomagic book says that um, the killing the father is absolutely necessary but that it because it leads to if you do it in a discerning way that it's part of the alchemical process uh, where you dissolve and coagulate and you have to bring it back together. But the without the dissolution, which means you know you have to separate to a degree and then dissolve everything and then bring it back, it can you can never be who you're meant to be. And you certainly see people who are still following the dictates of the father, whatever they was told. And by the way, that often brings people into analysis because they don't know why they're unhappy. Uh, they follow the, 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 a classic cliched example is you follow what your dad did because your dad right. was a lawyer and then you become a lawyer or your dad was this or that. Um, and that actually tends to be afflict the older son a lot, actually, I notice, mm-hmm. uh, because that's the pressure that is often put placed on that older child. Um, but if you don't do it, you don't really mature. And we'll get to the mother issue because that's just as big. And um and that's hard. Yeah, for a lot of people, it's extremely hard because it means the guilt comes in. And uh, and also you have to suffer that moment where you are in that St. John of the Cross idea of the dark night. Because sometimes what happens is you let go of something, but there's not something immediately waiting to, be, to replace it. And it's a really scary time because yes. you lose your moorings and it's that time the people reach out for the wrong things, right? That's why. And by the way, when I say it, I, I reference the midlife crisis, but I actually keep seeing it in people of all ages. They just look different, right? The twenties, the thirties, you see it in all age categories and at different times for different people. You see it in people sixties and seventies. What, what's really interesting to me is women who are older breaking from long-term relationships that have been really lousy. And somehow they get that, that push to do that really late in life, possibly because kids are older, et cetera. But it's that notion that this is my last chance at independence. And what's different about women versus men is when they do that, they don't necessarily or ever go to another relationship. It isn't about that. It's about the idea of I need to stand on my own two feet, right? And that happened a lot to my mother's generation. I saw that happening, that suddenly it just they had to make the escape in one way or another because they felt they were sinking. So it doesn't necessarily, midlife is just a great, it's just a great um, 
uh, marker because it often reminds you that you are on the the sun is descending. So you better get your act together. That's that's all. I wonder yeah, if for, for some reason, I, I think of, of career as a big thing uh, when it, it comes is. to midlife and in how the first half of life, you're really driven by career. And oftentimes that becomes the father you have to kill. It is. Yeah. Which is associated to the ego. But anyway, yeah, go on. Sorry. Right. Right. Well, I mean, there's so much stability um, and comfort that is scary to leave uh, behind. That's that's scary. I mean, you are I often think a lot of times when you're killing the father, you're killing some sort of protection uh, uh, in a sense of safety. Um, and, and there is danger. Uh, it, it, and it reminds me of that that song, The End. Um, one of the lines from that song is, there's danger on the edge of town. And uh, that's what you're doing whenever you're killing the father. You're, you're, you're leaving town. You're on the perimeter. You're on the edge. Right. And that's a scary place to be. You don't have the safety of of that structure, right? And, and so it's like you're 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 opening yourself up to, I mean, to life, to its <laughs> to both its bliss and its 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 uh, its terror in some ways. Oh yeah. What do you think of there? You know how this story is being told. I mean, obviously, it was told by masters like Joseph Campbell, right? Currently, it's being told by a bunch of people on the intellectual uh, circuit, which don't. It doesn't matter who they are, but they tell this story a lot. But they focus on one aspect of the story that has me thinking, and that's saving the father. Which, by the way, is a legitimate uh, other part of the story. You both can kill the father, and you can save the father. Often what's used is the Pinocchio story. He goes down to the belly of the whale. He saves Geppetto, blah, blah, blah. I have found, interesting enough, that those who want to save the father, which is, again, we sometimes have to save the institutions that are under uh, duress for whatever mm -hmm. reason. So there is a good legitimate um, reason for saving the father. But do you think, and this is a leading question, so, but uh, <laughs> I'll admit it, it's okay. Do you think that the way, what part of the story you're focusing on is saying something about you? Because it seems to me that there are people who are more interested in killing the father and they are the innovators. Um, they may be the ones that are not as recognized during their lifetime because people don't, it's too radical. And there are those who conserve, conservative, who want to save the father um, because they are fearful. And that's legitimate, legitimate as well. We are all fearful. And so their idea is, well, no, the problem is we've killed the father. These radicals have killed him. This is the French Revolution versus, you know, the conservative mm -hmm. movements like in England under Edmund Burke or whatever. And so I wonder if what part of the story you focus and retell is saying something about your own psychology because stories always say a lot about your own psychology because there's a million of them out there obviously we are focus focusing on certain ones personally because they're calling out to us right so is the saving the father ever appeal to you as a story or something that drew you or it doesn't matter it's just you haven't even thought about it yeah um I'll go to one of my favorite references, and that's Star Wars. Ah, no, it's a good reference. Go ahead. <laughs> no, 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 it's great. So uh, pretty much the central figure is Luke, and his father right. runs the machine, the machinery of, of, of the Empire. I mean, the Empire is the machine. Um, and so his father is... is uh, is that enforcer and he learns who his father is he had no idea um and his wise teachers the wise old men in his life tell him he has to kill his father and this is what is interesting about the story and i think hopefully i can make this make sense so he has this ambivalence because this is my father. I don't want to kill him. But at the same time, I want there to be peace and unity in the world. So he goes out and he confronts his father. 
and of course the you know the lightsaber battle ensues and, and all that um what happens is um he has an opportunity to kill his father but he doesn't his father actually saves him mm. and in doing so the father becomes human the father is mm. no he takes his mask off and he's no longer the terrible father he's human um now he ends up dying but what started off as a story of killing the father the father the mechanical father was killed the human father wasn't mm, that's very neat so there's a tension there it's like um it's kind of like with chemo i don't know why this just came in my head but the whole thing with chemo is you're poisoning your body but you only want to poison the rotten part, right? You don't want to kill off the whole thing. Right. So I don't know. I think there's something in the tension of that story with the father there. That's very interesting. And it also speaks to the fact that George Lucas was quite aware of mythological motifs, because let's look at Game of Thrones with the death, uh, with Tyrion killing his father. There isn't that grander idea behind it. I mean, it seems that it's more about revenge and, and anger, which is justifiable, given what's happened to this. So that's a completely, even though a Game of Thrones is always positive, is a great mythological idea. And and by the way, um, George R. R. Martin does really, he borrows so many motifs from the twins, which is everywhere, too. But but what I think is funny about, even though he's a great storyteller, by the way, I mean, it's impossible not to call him a great storyteller, is that he takes the mythological and he reduces it to the literal, like the, mm. the twins actually become this sexual thing, right? Whereas Wagner has, uh, for example, who is really uber mythological, has the twins in his uh, ring cycle. And it's completely all about this higher archetypal love that um, is really to the uniting of two opposites, right? So I think it's interesting that Martin was able to bring it down so much to earth and make this fantastic story. But somehow for me anyway, he missed that mythological um, connection because it is taken so much to this earthy, because he is an incredibly earthy writer. And I mean, I have to admit, I I, I read the books more than I saw the series. I did see the series, but it was so violent that it caused, it just, I couldn't see a lot of it. But um, the books definitely um, reflect this very well. And I'm, and, and I just, I'd never, I haven't seen all the Star Wars, but it makes me think that that is what makes people go back over and over again to those stories, because he was able to capture that mythological element that people try to capture, but it's actually really hard to do well, really hard to do well, right? Yes. I think The Lord of the Rings does it. I think that does it. I think Martin is a fantastic entertainer, but he quite does, doesn't quite reach that level of... Um, right. Of, uh, yeah. So it's interesting what, you know, I mean, when I think of that, of that story of killing the father and what you are actually doing is transforming the father. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Which is the higher level understanding what killing actually means. It's not killing, it is transformation. Um, yeah. And sometimes it can be very violent in its way of doing it because you have to separate yourself from something, including physically from your parents by changing location or by not talking to them for a couple of years because, you, you know, things happen and you, you right. that space is needed. So that's one manifestation. But at the end, you hope it's in, in the service of something greater to, to the relationship being stronger, right? Whereas, you know, this other is just, well, killing for the sake of, of killing because I'm really ticked off, which is, I don't think the same thing at all, right? right? 
And I don't think the mythologies ever point to that. It really, well, let's look at the Greeks. I mean, the Greeks were the ones that really perfected this to the complete art form um, because they start with the, the original chain of command is father killing, son killing father right to Zeus, right? Uh, Zeus kills father, father. Actually, no, Kronos actually gets banished. He isn't quite killed. The uh, Uranus is castrated, but then we go down and, and Kronos is actually just banished to, to a part of the underworld. Um, but then it comes to Zeus and that stops. Somehow that 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 story ends. But it's almost like you have to renew the, the, the story. And the only way to do that is to get rid of. And there's that other motif that shows up actually a lot in literature, which is that, and it shows up in history, about the father- fearing that the son's power will be greater than his own and therefore mm. not being able to allow that because the father is immature and does not want to relinquish power. That's another aspect of it. It works both ways, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the, 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 seeing the son as competition for the power that they have. And that's more in, you know, narratives to do with power, basic power in, in the world, not, not so much mythological uh, power. Although in the Greek mythological scheme it certainly works that way okay so what about the mother <laughs> there is the same story with the father we're talking about yes we are we're trying to renew societal on a higher level we're trying to renew um the society or save parts of it that transform great word what about the mother i mean the killing the mother is not as an obvious motif it is in sumerian myth actually we go back but it's actually, if you if you think about getting getting away from the mother or cutting away those those cords, what does that look like? Uh, again, I, I think um, this one's tougher. And the reason it's tougher for me, like you said, is because it's not as prevalent. And I don't think it's as prevalent. I don't think <laughs> it's as prevalent. Why why do you think? That's a very interesting question. Why do we have one so well it isn't in, in like I said Sumerian myth and it could speak to the fact it's been said no hard proof that you have more of a matriarchal structure and that yeah. you're trying to transform something maybe what needed to be transformed was the matriarchal stru structure. Again, no hard evidence for any of this. It's an intuition, right? Um so that's why maybe you had that in the earlier Babylonian uh, Sumerian myths and then by the time you get to the Greeks we're talking about complete uh, you know, structures based on the father, really, to think about it in terms of power, right? So maybe so, that's why we don't see it. So I, both of them are going to, so both killing the mother and father are going to involve aspects of leaving comfort and safety, right? Mm -hmm. Um. So a, a story that, you know, young adults are all familiar with is leaving home, for the first time, leaving your parents, leaving, you know, uh, the nurturing aspect of the mother um, and going out into uh, the quote unquote real, real world or, or, you know, the cruel world, however you want to look at it, the cold world, uh, leaving the warmth of the mother. That's what I think about. What I and we may talk about this film and other times, but what keeps coming to my mind right now, and I'll talk about it. Um, what is the Spanish movie that you oh, talk to me? her? I'm talk, to her. Just talk to her. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great example. So you have uh, one of the central characters, the nurse who <clears throat> was basically forced to care for his mom many years and didn't have a life. That was his life. Yep. And um, so she basically controlled him. And then when she died, he had this, um, he had this relationship with, with the feminine that uh, was very underdeveloped, I would say. Uh, so it stunted him in a lot of ways. Uh, he wasn't, um, uh, he had to have that presence. Uh, he projected his mother basically onto another woman because he become, he, he fulfills and functions to that woman as he did to his mother. So he never leaves that kind of relationship. Right, right. And so he never gets, he never goes past that. 
And so to kill the mother would be to kill, I think, emotional attachment in some ways. Yep. No, that makes total sense, right? You have to be, to be able to have a proper relationship or a real relationship with somebody else that has to in some way be transformed or else you're always running back, not physically, but the idea is you always run back to that primary relationship. And the second, I, I'm always reminded Von Franz, right? As you know, we both really like Marie-Louise Von Franz. Um, talking about a specific case of a man she she was uh, who was one of her analysis and who was so attached to his mother and the mother had great control over him and he finally found someone that was going to be uh, that he was going to marry and the mother did not approve because the mother would not have approved of anybody because such was a control and he ended up dying and I can't remember what he died of but the mother's comment was well thank God he died because it's better to see him dead than married to that woman. Now, as a mother, I can't even imagine like how 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 crazy. And she was saying that this is the example of a mother who cannot lock, lock, let go of the child and, and that destroys the child. And there are so many stories of this, both men, daughters and and uh, sons, who's because one of the dangers of being a mother and uh, parents in general, but I think there is a probably a greater danger in the mother is to have lived your life through that child to such an extent that you see them as an extension of you and not as independent people. And you project a lot of your own life onto them. And that, I think, again, talking about generations often happen with mothers like Marie-Louise von France was writing about this in the seventies, an older mother who never had a chance to be whoever she was. So that child became the life, right? But it's such a frightening thing. And there are a couple of books that I will link after, which I think are really great. One of them she wrote about the poor Eternus, the idea of the eternal child who never grows up. And that is, by the way, the, the real um, danger of not breaking away. You become Peter Pan forever. You don't grow up. You have no life. And, you know, that's you just never if we talk about individuation. Well, how the heck can you do that if you're sitting in psychologically in your parents' basement? So. Uh, that she wrote about it. And then there was a really good book written by a union analyst, again, inner city books. Her name was Ann Yeoman. And she wrote a book called The Peter Pan Complex, I believe, or maybe just Peter Pan. I can't remember, but I'll link it. And that was, again, speaking to the same thing. How many people show up in analysis who cannot live independently? In other words, that the voice of the parent is so strong in the head that they cannot take a step away from them. Physically, sometimes, or emotionally. I mean, you can, you can be living very far from your parents and still have those, those sure. voices controlling you. And so that the mother of the problem is, and I think you've said at the beginning, is you feel so much more guilt, which is interesting, right? I mean, why not around both parents? But because it's associated, but it's also a dangerous one because it is associated with unconsciousness. To break from the mother in the myth is to go into consciousness because the father does actually represent the conscious. The, the route towards consciousness and the way and unconscious. I mean, I, I love Marion Woodman's work on this and addiction, because that's often what happens with addicts. They're actually collapsing back into the unconscious because the conscious world feels so heavy that they can't really embody. They can't really step out into their lives. So one classic way is you just, you go back into the great mother in the sense of, well, I'll just drink myself into this or I'll take this drug or whatever it is. So you can't really, become the adult because it is too painful. Um, and so she would work a lot with people just on that basis on how do you how do you fully embody. And embodying actually is really interesting because the body in a way by fully owning it is part of because it's also the feeling state, right? It's really the separation. It's not my mother's feelings or somebody else's feelings. I'm actually recognizing that I am an independent person with my own desires, my feelings that may actually not match whatever the people around me want me to match, right? And so then you have the other thing that comes up, which is a lot of kids were put into situations where they are the outlier in the family. And then they become the person that carries that weight because everybody else is following the rules. And there's the one that says, well, I will not follow. And paradoxically, I've said this to you, I found that character in their, in, in the whole setup. Because that way, there's always someone who, and, and James Hollis has written about this, about what happens to families when that person dies, perhaps, or disappears. And then there's like a vacuum. <laughs> Somebody has to fill it. And they don't right. know what to do. Because who's holding on to that, that disowned energy? You know, it's a really dangerous time for, for everybody. 
And so I don't know how you get people to, well, I don't know how you get people to do anything, but just, I guess, <laughs> yeah, it's, I'm not like we're trying to get people to do anything. I think, I think that my whole passion, and this is why I started my group and why, why I do what I do is that um, I have seen in my own life and I've seen in the people that I know well, who have taken on this journey, which by the way, like I said last time, and I will repeat is extremely humbling at times that their lives just go better. It's a little bit better and that they can take on things in their lives that they were too scared to before. Now, I think uh, the more desperate you get, the more likely you're going to do that. And so yes. I think I think being put into a really bad place, and I don't know who was saying this, I don't know if I was discussing this with you or I was having this long conversation on Instagram about this yesterday, about how, well, maybe it was with you, about this notion that, oh, it was with you. Um, do we have to go to the, do we have to hit rock bottom before we... Oh. Yeah. Okay. And that's, that's one of the old, yeah, you hit the bottom and then you're able to, to, it's only then that you're screaming loudly enough to be able right. to do something. I know it doesn't always work that way, right? but it often does too. Right? Yes. And a lot of people have to get there uh, to that spot. Well, you're, to me, hitting bottom. And I mean, you know, that's not just about addiction. That's about so many things. That's about, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you've got nowhere else to go. And actually, the bottom is a good place to be. Um, <laughs> that, excuse me, say that again. The bottom is a good place to be. Yeah. For many people, um, that's just frightening. That is just a frightening, frightening idea. Uh, that's That's where we find ourselves. That's where we find our own inner resources. Because there's no, as Jung once said about, uh, there's no cover from the rear. Mm. There's uh, there's no protection there. I mean, you are naked, and uh, mythologically, uh, there's no hiding, and you are on the floor of uh, of your being. I mean, there's 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 nowhere to go. Okay. So Jim Morrison, he didn't survive. That's the no. problem. That's the problem, right? That's that's the the, the inherent danger that the the descent right to the bottom is the end. Uh, basically the whole thing. And that he's not the only one. You saw, you see that we talked about this, the Club of 27. Is that what they're called? Yes. The Club yeah. Okay. Yeah. Club 27 and so many, whether whether it's Janis Joplin or Hendrix or recently oh what's her name the the um uh amy winehouse. amy winehouse yeah it's like there's this whole group of people and i've often wondered is it because the next step is maturity i mean there is something about the late 20s that takes you into big time decision when you either you're sort of forced to grow up i think everybody when they hit 30 there is this notion that look you can't it's not you're not dancing around it's not going to be accepted and is that a refusal to take on the unconscious though it may be because a lot of these were accidental right um do is that a refusal to take on the next part of life which is heavy and and not so you can't collapse into the unconscious it's almost like they went back into the unconscious that the mother actually grabbed yeah her. well what do you think of when you think of the stereotypical rock star uh, i think of peter pan that's yeah that's, that's true that, yeah that's yeah, that's, that's what that's true yeah. yeah you you've you've outstayed uh you're welcome in childhood um in some ways so uh yeah with i definitely think there was a a step that they weren't able to uh, or a bridge they weren't able to cross right um because really what happened to all of them is I would say they became more so victims of the father hmm. because what are they involved in? They're involved in industry and industry has demands. Industry has, you know, things to say about your art and expectations. 
and uh, it's very demanding. And so a lot of times I, I think, um, especially when thinking of those, you know, Kurt, Kurt Cobain's another one. Um, I think that's something that uh, the, all of these artists had integrity. They weren't, you know, you listen to, you, you read Jim Morrison's lyrics and, and listen to him. He's not someone that's showing out for public acceptance, mm -hmm. but crossing over into um, real adulthood, that reality, um, for whatever reason, that's, that's hard to do. Um, and, and so what he did was he succumbed to alcoholism and he went back into the mother. Yeah. Yeah. That's what happens. So, yeah. But it's interesting. There are many ways to do that at different ages, because if you look at rock stars and there, and a lot of people, you know, in, in, in actors and such and actresses, um, in their 70s, 60s, 70s, masquerading as 30-year-olds. It's just also an inability to go. And it's, I mean, it's true. I'm sorry. I mean, it's like no, it's no. ability to grow into another face of life, which, by the way, isn't awful if we know how to, how to walk into it. And what it seems to me that you're still bowing to the same God. And at that point, it is this notion that you're still going to be 30 when you're 60 or 70, which is absurd. And uh, it actually doesn't really help us understand the whole notion of how to be an elder and how to mentor, which is, again, a big a big uh, role that we can have in life. So there are ways to not go into, into life uh, or to, to refuse to go into the next phase of life, which mirror that, even though it doesn't end up with you being completely destroyed. It's, it's showing a fundamental problem that lies at that. And I think it is an ego problem, which is, you know, you're not able to see that there are you can move beyond that persona that you've put out there in the right. world right um it's it's often said about michael jackson that he he was a later stage uh, falling apart actually someone did a study of this and said it was more likely that a musician would actually die in their 50s mid 50s than in that when they looked at it and i remember a story about michael jackson saying he could not fathom being older than 50 that that was shocking and scary to him and it's funny that or interesting that he died i think just after his 50th birthday, yeah. right? Yeah. So it's another way of checking out, saying I will not go into elderhood because that's just a frightening thing. I mean, the society definitely does not support you doing that either because it is shocked by the idea of aging. So it's, a, it's a, just a bigger question about this this whole thing, you know, that, uh, that uh, it's sad, but it is a regression into something that seems like that's safe. I could just go back into that world. And actually, you know, fame has that quality, where you're treated like a child in a way, mm -hmm. everybody's protecting you from the reality of who you really are. You can get away with behaviors that are not appropriate to, to a conscious, right. you know, so it's actually the same thing. You're just collapsing into that. And I think what's sad to me is how much power we give to these people that are holding on to, we project all of this, this power to them and it destroys them, but it actually yeah. destroys us too. You know, in the, in the, in the uh, I'm trying to think of like, this is why I love Margaret Mead. There's a famous story of Margaret Mead going to a Hollywood party filled with all of these famous actresses, all gorgeous and everybody circling around Margaret Mead because she was such a great storyteller. And that gives me hope that there's maybe something beyond what people are looking at that might be a little bit more, substantive but i mean it's yes. not hope for a long time by the way it's very very minimal hope but i just think that that's that's what we're presenting we're presenting people who are children who've never grown up and and then there's other children looking to them saying this is what i want to be how the heck can we even be oh and by the way i mean we've seen what that's led to politically we don't even need to go there so it's the idea of you take power you give it to people who do not have the maturity to hold it and then we really create huge problems problems that are really dire i mean they're not just not the fact that, you know, women, for example, start going down and having to fix their faces at a certain age. That's one manifestation. But, you know, it's also giving power to things that are that can actually affect our lives in, in fundamental ways. So so after all that uh, light, uh, <laughs> light talk, <laughs> let's, let's think of something equally uh, light to talk about next time. But uh, anyway, I just find this whole thing so interesting because it has been there since it is the motif that runs through so many of the... Um, stories from the beginning it's still there whether it's star wars or game mm -hmm. of thrones um and it's speaking to the same fundamental 
thing we have to do in life, which is break from the father, break from the mother, take on our own lives. And be, you keep bringing the story of the mentors, I think it's so important because it's a big word for me, and become the mentor like to other people so you don't yes. see this happening. And I don't know how you create good mentors unless there are people that, unless there are role models for what that looks like, you know? Um, I think there is, what there's a couple of people, like I think of Jimmy Carter as a mentor that really, I, I always notice Jimmy Carter because of the fact that he's in his mid-90s and he's building these homes, even though he's, you know, he's clearly ailing. That to me is a one form of mentorship. I think Joseph Campbell was another great example Certainly. of how you mentor. And I just think we have to put these people out there so that we have different models for what we might want to be. And want to you see. know, I, I, speaking of Joseph Campbell, I, I think one of the ways that you find mentors is actually if you, it's kind of like this chicken and egg thing. Um, You need a mentor to help you get on your path um, sometimes. Uh, but other times, it's like you have to be on your path to find a mentor. Yeah, that that's sense. very true. No, that totally makes true. And that means you have to take the first step away from the mother. Big, yeah. big first step, right? Whatever your age is, you have to be able to know how to walk. Uh, even though it feels really, really unsafe. And that's yes. that's the ultimate thing. And sometimes, and I think because we know so many artists, um, that means also taking a walk away from what the father uh, promises, which is security, um, status. Maybe, you know, I know tons of people who are great at a particular art form, but are scared to leave their day jobs because of that fear. And so there's so much involved in that. But you know, the question you always have to ask yourself is, I mean, what happens if you don't do that? And there's so much unhappiness around that. And so much, so, you you know, not giving yourself permission to do something can really, really make you miserable in ways that are, are hard to even overstate. So anyway, that's again, another another story for another day. I Thanks for listening. The music you've been listening to is from Jay Rettlesberger's album, Harvesting James. You can find his music at the links provided in the show notes. There you'll also find links to anything else we've mentioned during our conversation. Thanks also to our producer, Andrew Graham. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating so others will find us as well. For now, until next time.